Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by Zach Cruzens, and Zach has packed an amazing amount of paddling across the globe into just a few short years. Fresh off a guiding season in Antarctica, Zach joins us today to share a trip that he completed with two friends starting in El Chalten in Patagonia along the Rio Santa Cruz to the Atlantic in Puerto Santa Cruz. So enjoy today's episode with Zach Cruzens. Hey Zach, welcome to Paddling the Blue. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate you joining me today. So, Zach, tell me a little bit about your personal paddling background. Well, John, uh, I've done a lot of paddling my whole life since I was quite young, um, but mostly it was canoeing. So I grew up canoeing southern Ontario, uh, actually called northern uh, Ontario, Agonquin Park area, like two or three hours north of Toronto, through scouts, through summer camps, family and all that. We, I went out camping a lot, went paddling in a canoe, I did a little bit of kayaking, but it wasn't really until I went up to Lakehead University in Thunder Bay. I went to the Outdoor Recreation Parks and Tourism program there in 2003, and I was just super wowed by Lake Superior and open water, and I was uh, kind of mesmerized by it. I don't really know what it was. My dad grew up in Wawa, and I'd been up to the lake when I was younger a few times, I, I was just so intrigued by it, and I got offered to do a trip in early spring with a couple friends. It was April 2005, I think it was, and uh, it was my first sea kayak trip ever. I've ever been in a sea kayak, and I was just like, wow. I had to break through the ice to get out there and uh, into the open lake, and when we got in the open lake, there was just these beautiful smooth rollers, wide open space. We did a big crossing, and uh, wasn't so much prepared, and we were quite lucky with conditions. But from doing that, I was just instilled with a zest for life that has driven me to do all the trips I've done all over the world. And from there, I did a training course with sea kayaking, mountaineering uh, with an Hour Bound leadership program and got involved with working for Hour Bound quite a bit. And in, in, uh, I've worked for them all over the world and done lots of sea kayaking and mountaineering expeditions with youth, mostly high school student age, 16, 18. I, I ended up uh, meeting a guy my first year up at Lakehead that was from a small town in the North Shore of Lake Superior and worked as a kayak guide there. And he told me a little bit about what his job was like and it sounded really amazing. And I'm like, oh, I really want that. And I remember seeing him, like I hadn't talked to him like a year and a half, two years. And he's like, hey, my, if you want to work, want my job in Rossport kayak guiding, uh, it's yours. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, cool. So I got in kayaking and guiding down there and I didn't really know much about the area. So I had to learn. And, and uh, the guy that owned the small little kayak shop there, Dave Tamlin in the town of Rossport, he's like, oh, why don't you uh, write a guidebook on the area? So that got stuck in my mind. And I started putting together a book and in 2012, published it with my friend Daryl Macon. Um, as a collaborative effort together, we have put together a lot of info and knowledge on the area. So yeah, super passionate about that part of the world. And uh, and got involved with kayaking and leading expeditions there. I've uh, been doing it since 2006, so, uh, as well as working all over the world between seasons. And I've worked in Panama, and, and I lived on a sailboat for over a year, traveling across the Pacific, kayaking in the uh, islands in Mexico and Baja, California, and Sea Cortez down to Panama, Costa Rica, French Polynesia, and then went to New Zealand, Australia, and did a lot of paddling around there, some major expeditions to talk about there as well. Also, in the mix of all that, I met a guy who was from Chile in Patagonia, in the southern part of Chile, and I worked with him in, in the U.S., in Washington, uh, for Our Bound, 
And he invited me to go work with him down for his small company in the Aysen region of Patagonia, really off the beaten pack path type area. And that's, this is where I really got connected to that region. This is 2011, I think. 2011-12, uh, I was down there for about six months, five months. Yeah, beautiful experience living with the people and on these wild rivers and lakes, but mostly river paddling and some fjord paddling. But I was doing stuff on the real backer. And at that time, the, the real backer or real baker, as it's pronounced in English, the Baker River, was under threat of a dam proposal. Uh, along with uh, Bravo and Pasqua, other uh, two other rivers in Chile, Chile and Patagonia, and I was quite amazed at how many people were really passionate about not having this happen. And they started a movement called the Patagonia Sin Represas, which is uh, Patagonia without dams. They didn't want dams damming their natural flow of the rivers that we were doing these amazing kayaking trips down. And uh, I was mostly doing these five-day expeditions down the Baker River that went from like almost from the northern ice fields to uh, like in the lakes all the way down the river to the to the ocean, so source to sea. So I got really intrigued by these source to sea expeditions, and I did another one, northern Chile. And then in the meantime of all this, I went back to Lake Superior in, in 2018 and started my first season with my business, Such a Nice Day Adventures, which I'll talk a bit about later. And I uh, met up with an old friend, Ken Storm. He's actually from Minneapolis, but he bought an island off Rossport on Lake Superior, in the Canadian side of Lake Superior. And I've known him for a while, been good friends with him, connecting. And I've loved his deeper learning approach to expeditions and paddling. And he's done a lot of stuff in, uh, in the Zampo River Valley in Tibet and done these like spiritual pilgrimages, as he calls them, where he connects to like the local people in the land and, and, uh, and then connects it to another area through like the like geological composition and paleontology and everything you can think of so anyway i hadn't i've kind of lost touch with him between like 2010 and 2018 doing a lot of different adventures and in 2018 i reconnected with him had lunch on his island with him at the end of one of my trips and uh we started talking about he's like hey i've been doing reading on the the history of this uh this uh, rio santa cruz and i'd heard about it it's more in like the pampa the steppa of uh of patagonia yeah, that kind of brings me up to uh, to what I'm going to talk about today, and with this uh, this great trip that we did uh, from source to sea, from the Patagonian Andes in Argentina to the Atlantic Ocean, following uh, the from the town of El Chaltan, just outside the town of El Chaltan in, in Patagonia, which is where uh, where the Patagonian logo is is from. If the the Patagonian clothing logo that everyone's probably familiar with, the big towering mountains of Mount Fitzroy and and uh, Cerro Torre uh, in the distance. And we started our trip on Lago Vidma and went to the Rio La Leona and then connected to Lago Argentino and then followed the Rio Santa Cruz all the way out towards it, where it met the salt waters of the Atlantic. So that's what this trip's about. Um, and uh, it's uh, about a 350 mile, 500 kilometer journey. And uh, yeah, amazing uh, a journey through this untouched landscape because most people that travel to this, this area they um, they will uh, they they go to the, the, the mountains. <laughs> I even joke and, and call them the the boners of Patagonia because people are are, are really drawn to these places in uh, Torres del Paine in Chile and then uh, Mount Fitzroy and El Chaltan and they are spectacular, amazing places to be drawn to. And but uh, not a lot of people go off the beaten path into this into the Pampa into the Steppa. The, la the glacial outflow of the Andes Mountains that, that flows all the way out to the Atlantic. So that, this is like the story that we were connecting. And we're also retracing um, uh, two different past journeys that uh, my friend Ken Storm, who joined me on the expedition, 
So on, on this expedition myself, I kind of organized it and led it with uh, Ken Storm and my other friend Cole, uh, Cole Susarenko, who, who's from Vancouver Island, Canada. And uh, the three of us came together and we both had, a, we, we, all three of us had a lot to offer uh, to make the expedition happen. So it was quite, quite the time. Well, that getting into the backcountry is uh, it kind of reminds me. It's probably kind of like our uh, our national parks here in the United States, where you know ninety percent or more of the visits to the national parks people never get out of the visitor center. And uh, yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so you got a similar situation. So, but you went deep. So let's hear about uh, let's hear about the trip and and really how you experienced the uh, the country. Yeah. So my one Ken told me about this. This was like August two thousand eighteen. And I was slated to work my first season in Antarctica uh, come November. So I was heading down there and I had the month of January off. So I was like, hey, you know what? In January, let's, let's do this trip. And, and uh, I've, been, I've been working with uh, Track Kayaks quite a bit, which is a really interesting folding uh, kayak company, like a performance folding kayak. And uh, I had, uh, they had a new boat coming out. So I had contacted them and they're like, hey, cool. Uh, we, we'll, uh, we'll let you use uh, some of these new uh, Track 2.0s, uh, like a little lighter, lighter weight, stronger version of, uh, of the original uh, Track Seeker 16 model, but it's a 16-foot uh, folding expedition sea kayak that is quite amazing. And as soon as I mentioned it to Ken, he's like, whoa, that's like the most perfect boat, because he was thinking about originally doing it in a pack raft, and I'm like, whoa, you got to think about this. It's, it's, we're going in crazy catabatic winds that come off these mountains that can pick up 40, 50 knots, like in a, in a heartbeat, you know, if we're in a pack raft, we're just going to get blown around at least with these, these proper sea kayaks that, uh, can be packed with gear. We can, uh, have weight to hold ourselves in the water. So, um, immediately when I heard about the trip, I started doing research online and I actually looked, Googled and I was looking at YouTube videos and there's not a lot of people that had paddled the route before. So, uh, I just found this guy, uh, Santiago Arias. He actually wor- has worked as a kayak guide and, and he now works as a mountain guide in El Chaltan. And uh, he had a YouTube channel and a YouTube video. So I literally just messaged him, found him on Facebook, I think, and sent him a message. And I'm like, hey, Santiago, we're thinking about doing this trip um, from, uh, from the, the Atlantic, from the Andes to the Atlantic all the way down. And I understand you've done the trip and I'd like to pick your brain. So I kept in touch with him and I met up with him in Buenos, uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina because he, he lives just outside Buenos Aires. Uh, and I met up with him uh, when I was on my way down to Antarctica in uh, October or no, no, November 2000, uh, uh, like 2018. I was down there and talked to him in detail, looking at all these detail, uh, the fine details on Google Earth of where to go and what to do and who to stay with and where you can land. And if the wind picks up, where can you go? What can you do? And uh, all the decisions and regulations and the Prefectura, which is like the Argentine Navy, they're like, no way they're going to let you do it. And uh, what it came down to was just like not even being like, you know what, we're not going to ask permission. We're just going to do it. And it's like, no one's going to see it. No one's going to be out there. Just, just don't. Just don't, uh, just don't get in a situation. Uh, so it was obviously a risk we had to take, like any any trip. But it just seemed like it was if we notified authorities that we're going to do it, they were not going to let us do it. Uh, plus, there was a major dam development project happening, and we didn't really know the status of of what where the dam was going to be at, and if we could get through because we'd heard somebody had gone through and they had these pontoons for like a little bridge to go across where the dam construction is going, and you would, and it was like. It was not safe to pass, so it's like, oh, do we get out? We walk around, and people gonna say anything? We didn't. We, so we so connecting with what was going on, uh, like socially and economically in the region, in terms of like the parks and um, 
uh, and, and who uh, who is in in control of of what in in in, in the different places. So we were like, we got to just go and do this. So I talked to everyone I could, and Santiago introduced me to a few other people that knew about the area. But he walked me through exactly where to camp because you can only really camp where there's shelter from the wind. And oh man, the wind was something else on this trip. Like we Lago Vidma, I, we were in in El Chaltan prepping and getting our food together for like two or three days. Um, and we saw a window. I had a window, and I, I like eight hours of, of time to do the ten mile, sixteen kilometer crossing of Lago Vidma to just get across and get down that lake. And uh, we and, and and Cole and I were really comfortable in the kayak and 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 in and prep for this. We had done a lot of uh, of big water paddling ourselves and were quite comfortable. Ken hadn't done as much. He was more comfortable with the river. He'd paddled the Grand Canyon and did lots of stuff. But the open lake really scared him, and paddling downwind in a sea kayak was something he was not super comfortable with. I'd done the rescues with him uh, prior. I went down to Minneapolis even too in, in September 2018, and, and, and we, we got used to the boats um, and, and played around on his local lake there outside Minneapolis and, and, and felt uh, like so he could be comfortable in the boat at least, and he was comfortable, but when it came to big conditions, it was challenging. So we, we made the crossing. We did a, a crossing in a line tow just to be 100% safe. Uh, along, we started at 6 a.m. Beautiful, beautiful wind window of like six to eight hours that we had to get across before wind was picking up again. And you've got three of you on this on this trip. There was there was three of us. Yeah, okay. so we had three people uh, lined up in a in a in a, like a long line tow, just uh, all, all all together. So if something happened, we were, we could go through it. And Cole and I had done some some open water paddling on Vancouver Island and and and, and some training doing similar type of scenarios training with paddle canada and stuff so we we were we were comfortable managing the situation if anything was to happen but we knew we had to get across the lake and then we were going to be like downwind because the wind was coming catabatically off the mountains and funneling down so the the lake is from the from like the west to the east lengthwise it's pretty i think it's like maybe like yeah 10 to 15 miles uh widthwise across and maybe like uh uh, 100 mi- or 70, 80 miles long, I want to say. So it's a long lake. Uh, we had to gun it down there. So we ended up getting across the lake, and then I think we paddled like uh, 30 to uh, if you, uh, 30, 30 to 35 miles or 50, 55 kilometers, somewhere in there that day. And we got to this Estancia, and uh, the wind was picking up for the last like two hours we were out there, and Ken was actually not that comfortable. So we, we ended up towing his boat, and he walked the shoreline, which he quite enjoyed, and, and we made it to that Estancia. And when we were at this Estancia, uh, we were told nobody was there at all, but there's actually somebody that lived up higher. So we walked up, maybe like a kilometer up uh, uh, to, to this house this, uh, at this like old kind of sheep farm, essentially. People have big, vast land there with lots of sheep, like million acre hectare type uh properties that are just go on forever with like huge amounts of uh sheep and 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 some cattle and some stuff too so that it's like a a rural farming area essentially and and these gauchos that live at these estancias are are quite friendly and it really helped uh for me to have a fairly good understanding of the spanish language to be able to communicate with these guys and uh, we asked permission to stay on the property. They're like, no problem. They fed us like a, a Cordero asado, like a lamb barbecue type thing, and, and shared some yerba mate, like tea with them, and had a good time. Uh, yeah, and, and we had all these uh, resources from the trip. So, so this is day one, right? So you're day yeah, this one. Is still day one we're talking about. So you're, you're rogue. You've got a, th- a group of three with varying abilities. 
um, you're, um, you've got catabatic winds and you're doing a big open crossing and then you just happen to show up at this, uh, Estancia. Yeah. Well, we had really <laughs> flat, we had really flat wind, window, uh, okay. winds with no wind at all to do the crossing. So we made it across and then we're paddling like another, like 30 kilometers down the coast. And during that time it picked up, but we knew we had a window to get across the lake and we knew it was going to pick up later. So by the end of the day, I think we were looking at like 35, 40 knot winds, uh, from behind. So like, and it's gusty too. So like it, when we got to the Estancia, we had some tree protection to set up our tents and not get blown away. So, so that's all uh, day one. I mean, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear about the other days. Well, this is actually day two. So we, <laughs> we, right. we started on the lake and paddled like a very short distance and camped out uh, the first night. And it was a really spectacular night uh, with the scenery. And we knew this high pressure system was coming in with a good window for us the next day. So that's why we, we got and we, we paddled out in a bit of wind that day. And we had this gut, this little squall came in and actually blew my tent away the first night and ripped my tent. And I had to repair it, which happens when you're out there you got to be just prepared for it but there's no way to really even if you have like sand stakes or like what you really need is like pvc piping uh with like holes in to like stake your tent into the sand properly and uh, i knew i kind of needed that but we didn't have it and i knew most of our sites were going to be sheltered except for this one but uh coming down to it like we and we were pretty good about making our distance each day to get to these sheltered Estancias or little treat areas. The night two, uh, the the second day was like a 55 kilometer, 30 mile day, and then night two we made it to this Estancia way down the lake, and and we still had like a a good 40 kilometers, I think like 36 kilometers it was to paddle the next day. And when we woke up, it was just howling, and we knew the the forecast was howling for the next like four days straight. And we talked to Ken about it. I'm like, hey, what, what do you want to do? Like, Cole and I are comfortable, like, riding these waves downwind all the way to the end of the lake and getting into the river, the La Leona River at the end. But uh, Ken wasn't. And we're like, hey, you know what? It's not about doing this whole route. We don't care about that. We're learning about the history of the area and and, and really what the history, the de- depth of the history was was on the, the, the Rio Santa Cruz. But we thought it was neat to try to attempt to go from the source to the sea. And, uh, and it was spectacular. Um, to, to be on that lake. But th- because we had these folding kayaks and all this gear, we were able to disassemble them and fold them up and fit them all into the back of his Toyota Hilux pickup truck. And all three of us could drive like the 40 plus K to, uh, to this little hotel uh, roadhouse that was on the Rio La Leona, that was on the uh, Route de Corenta, which is the Route 40 that goes all the way uh, across down South America. So the main highway connects here. So we, at this point, we, we spent, spent the night there. It was howling winds. They had a fence set up in the campground. It was really cheap to stay there. And they had a restaurant. So we had some food. And, and we, uh, we had, a friend, uh, had a friend join us the next day even, too. And uh, that was from Califate, who I worked with in Antarctica. And she, uh, and, and she joined us the next day with a, with a fiberglass kayak that was empty. What the challenge was, we had a really nice, calm morning uh, going down the Rio La Leona and cruising down the river but the, the winds started picking up later and uh, Nicole actually had to get off the river earlier because she didn't have a weighted down boat. Our boats were really ideal because we had a lot of gear in them for like 14 days. We, we were sitting in the water quite nicely. So with the, ri- the current was going maybe uh, anywhere from six to eight knots uh, of speed on the river, if you can imagine like flow of current. Um, so it's a pretty f- decent, and there's some class plus two, two plus rapids, I'd say. It's all high volume, so it's not like there's like crazy rocks or anything, but there was some little wave trains we had to go through that were quite fun. Um, and we, on, on the river, like Ken was right at home. He was comfortable. He knew how to navigate on the river, and we were paddling 
the winds must have picked up 40, like might, maybe even gusting 45, 50 knots, uh, nautical miles per hour. So really strong winds on this river. And, and, and the wind was going, uh, we were, the river's meandering like crazy. I think we did like 80 plus kilometers in that one day. It was a huge day, but, but we did like the whole river in one day. Yeah, and you've got, got 60, this, you this got 68 mile an hour, or, uh, not current too, so that's going to yeah, help you. Yeah, so, so I'd say it's between five and, and maybe eight at the strongest points, but it, it, it depends on how wide the river was and where we were exactly. And sometimes the wind was opposing the current, and, and what's crazy is like we get these 45 plus knot gusts of wind and we're on the river and we're still moving down the river very, very, very slowly, paddling as hard as we can just to keep our boats pointed in the wind. Um, but with the weight in the kayak, it was no problem. But once uh, the afternoon roll, wind uh, and these gusts picked up, uh, Nicole was having a hard time. Uh, and and we, had to, we, we ended up sending a message to my inReach and got, uh, she got picked up a little bit earlier than had planned. And, and that was fine, but it, she was in an empty fiberglass boat and she was getting blown around it's like you got to get off the river when that happens right yeah uh, so when you say river give us a scale of the river i mean uh, what are we looking at in terms of width and the, the size of this river uh so it's a pretty high volume i, I i'm bad at, at at knowing like the flow uh like how much water like cubic meters per second or but if you think uh, river width uh, are we talking uh you know 100 yeah. 100 feet wide or are we talking a mile wide so uh, we're talking uh maybe like 20 to 40 feet wide at points and then and a mile wide at other points okay like uh, towards the end of the river it like it braids out and it was maybe like open like and it's wide open valleys valleys right so it's like it's almost like the badlands of like north dakota or south dakota or whatever badlands national park that you got in the u.s there it's it's similar terrain to that which is really unique and there's all these interesting dinosaur fossils and we, luckily we joined up with a tour group uh with a kayak a local kayak company there um, that did tours down the La Leona River in, du- in double kayaks with people that had, didn't really have that much experience, but they had them all in double kayaks without rudders, and they would go down the river, and they'd have lunch and do a little hike to these dinosaur bones. So there's like, hey, you want to do a hike to the dinosaur bones with us? So we joined them and saw these, like, dinosaur bones that were just lying. It looked like a huge, like, brontosaurus leg bone or something uh, that we saw, like, in these badlands that just, like, washed away. So there's quite a unique uh, fossil history going on uh, on this river and in, in, in the area and the, the landscape just amazing lots of uh, pet, petrified wood as well um, old ancient forests so the like the geologic history of the t- of the places is quite spectacular and uh, Ken was really uh, really fascinated with everything uh, to do with that and I, I we learned a lot from him um, throughout the the journey here at this point here where we have paddled the real La Leona and we got to our campsite that night we knew the winds were picking up like going to be consistent for the next like three days or two or three days uh, on our forecast that we had saw and we had somebody sending us weather through an in reach and to get an idea just we were using windy and WindFinder and uh wind guru a few of those like apps that people use for the window wind and and sometimes i could get cell phone reception around here too with my argentine sim card but it was touch and go is a bit more reliable with the inReach. So we get, we got the weather information and we got to this little Estancia and um, in, uh, in, the, in the forest, we had some tree protection. So it was a beautiful protected spot right on the river. We didn't ask, there was like some, uh, there was a couple horses there and somebody who was there, but they, they didn't mind us being there. We, we asked and they're like, yeah, no problem. Uh, so we stayed there and uh, we, uh, Cole and I actually called I sent a message for an inReach and got uh, got a friend to come pick us up, 
and go in the town. And we spent, Cole and I spent a night in town uh, and resupplied food. Um, and just to pick up a couple fresh things, why not? You know, Ken wasn't feeling so well, so he just rested. And we, uh, we resupplied some food in Calafate, which is maybe like a 40-kilometer drive in the town. But it was close enough that we could get some fresh supplies. And like, why not, right? We don't need that. We had enough food to go, but we picked up some fresh meat, fresh vegetables, and then returned the next day. And then that next day was still too windy to go. Because uh, this, this, this uh, river came out of uh, the Lago uh, Argentino, the L- Argentino Lake, which is the next lake down. And, and, and it, it's a really, it's the same as Lago Vidma. It's like probably 70 miles long plus uh, in, in length and maybe uh, like 20 miles in width. So it's like a really long, narrow lake. And, and the, on one end's the mountains and the one end's the, the Pampa flat. Uh, Patagonian step that just goes on all the way across the Atlantic, uh, across to the Atlantic. So it's this flat land, and the mountains are on one side, so it creates this catabatic winds coming down. They were just funneling down full on. We went up to a viewpoint to see the lake, and we're like, no way we can go, no way we can go. And then we knew we had a bit of a window after like two days of waiting there. So we had like three days off paddling pretty much. And then we continued and we got up like at four in the morning and we're on the water at first light and made it uh so it was nice because it was january like middle of summer here and we had lots of light long days so we could do punch out some some serious distance so i think we did another like 70 plus kilometer day and and we we it was only six kilometers like three four miles on the on the lake of really extreme exposure so we did it first thing in the morning and punched through that and it was just beautiful to see all the way clear sky all the way down to the to the Patagonian Andes snow-capped mountains where the Merino Glacier uh, comes out. I, I want to stop here for a minute and talk a little bit about the history of, of the region because uh, I'm bouncing around but I think a big meaning of what, what we're getting onto now because originally Ken was like, hey, I want to go on a pack raft and float down the, the Rio Santa Cruz and he wants to retrace Darwin's uh, trip from 1834 when he was in the voyage of the Beagle, and they went uh, through. Uh, they went up the Rio Santa Cruz, so they went to Porto Santa Cruz, which was in the mouth of the Beagle. And Magellan had gone through there in like in 1500s when he was doing his uh, discovery of uh, South America. Spent the Spanish explorer Fernando Magellan, uh, and he named uh, the uh, the place Porto Santa Cruz, but he never went explored up the river. On Darwin's voyage, he was looking at different sources to the Andes. He knew they were there on the other side, but he's like, hey, this river keeps going and the water's glacial. It's got to come from the mountains. So, hey, let's take some lifeboats up. And they spent 23 days going against this current. So the Rio Santa Cruz is maybe like four to maybe five, six knots. It's not quite as strong as the Rio La Leona in terms of like river water speed. And it depends on the time of year and the volume and the flow. But it's a similar, uh, it can be like 20, 40 feet wide to to a mile wide as it braids out and, and splits. But it's uh, it's mainly just the valleys that are, are just flat and open that can create uh, crazy winds. So uh, in 1834, I think it was April 1834, uh, Darwin with uh, his captain Fitzroy, who was uh, the mountains were named off of, went cert, spent 23 days going from the Atlantic Ocean in Porto Santa Cruz all the way up the, the river to try to find the Andes Mountains. And, and they came maybe 20 miles short of, of finding the mountains before they were running out of food. After 23 days of struggling up the river, they had to turn around. But on this journey, and as they traveled up, uh, they had their artist Conrad Martins uh, painted the landscape in all of these different areas. 
and, um, and, and, and some of them are in the Voyage of the different uh, versions of the Void, the book, The Voyage of the Beagle. That uh, the Beagle was the boat, boat they were traveling on, and uh, they, they, they had been on, it was like a two-year journey, quite a remarkable trip going all around South America, the Galapagos, and, and Darwin's looking at like the natural history of the landscape, of, uh, of the wildlife, of everything. So he took notes, and, and we had a copy, or Ken had a really de- detailed copy of Darwin's journal and all of Conrad Martin's paintings. So Ken was really keen to paddle with the flow of this river and visit these sites that Conrad Martins had drawn and find them and like photograph them and experience them before this giant mega dam uh, hydroelectric project uh, was to be constructed. So uh, that's uh, that was a big thing. I was like, hey, we got to do this before the, the river's completely dammed and, and experience the whole place. But it was quite remarkable that Fitzroy and his men and Darwin and them, they didn't discover Lago Argentino and see the Andes Mountains. They, they stopped 20 miles shy. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and I think they named the last plane they could see Disappointment Plane before they turned around. So we had these old ancient maps that we were kind of using to follow as well as like Google Earth maps because it had really good air photos of, of the whole landscape. Um, so when we were retracing this voyage, we were going to these sites and, and visiting these paintings. And it was amazing to go and like look at this ancient landscape from 1834 that was painted. It's the only history, visual history of the area. And then look at it with our own eyes and take photos of it and be like, wow. We saw lots of uh, wildlife, an incredible amount of uh, wanako, which are like la- wild llamas. They're uh, uh, wild around everywhere. These EU type species called the Rhea darwini. Rhea darwini is the is the Latin name. The, uh, Darwin Darwin named them the Rias, and they uh, I think they actually ate them and hunted them on the trip, uh, and said they uh, remarked that they tasted quite quite nice but uh there were there was huge abundance of these these birds these uh flightless birds they're like emus uh all around the the riverbanks and it's kind of like they're using that's like their their stomping grounds the natural flow of this river a whole bunch of other like uh endemic kingfisher red-breasted uh red-breasted meadowlarks uh kestrels uh, uh ibis is a really unique bird to the area even flamingos we could see these like patagonia flamingos uh pink birds flying around so the wildlife was quite remarkable um, what we were seeing, seeing around there, and uh, so the traveling through there was was a unique experience. So you mentioned the the dam project. So tell us a little bit about yeah. the dam project that's going on there. Yeah. So this is a quite a big story. So uh, I'm not I'm not sure the year exactly, but anyway, uh, as China likes to do, they like to come in and develop things, and and it's a quite a, a sad story because Argentina is a struggling economy as it is, right? So it's not. It's not the prettiest situation. What's going on economically in their country, and they uh, and so China is like, hey, uh, we'll, we'll, they're looking at just more infrastructure, more dams. They've done the Three Gorges dams in uh, in China, like a, a, the one of the largest dam development projects in the world. And they're like, hey, let's dam this river, and and create some electricity, and run a power line all the way to the city center in Argentina, and and like they they're not necessarily in need of the power. But they're like, hey, this is an economic opportunity. Let's uh, let's build this dam. So China's like funding the project essentially, and and probably charging Argentina a lot of interest. And they're building this dam development project. They're hiring. They have a lot of Chinese workers working there. I was surprised how many Chinese workers we saw compared to Argentinian Argentinian workers, because at least they could create jobs for Argentinian workers, which they are. And I know um, 
we uh, we ran into an Argentinian worker that was almost in tears because he was working on this dam and he was so sad that he was damming such a beautiful landscape and river. It was it was very very emotional. Um, we had we had heard about it and from a few different people that uh, like this other guy Loli Roberts. He lives in El Chaltan. He he works for a, th- a local kayaking company there, and and he had paddled the river. He like raced it in like I, don't know, I think he did the trip in like forty eight hours or something crazy in the winter and it was like below 20 celsius minus 20 really cold conditions and and he paddled through there and he showed us footage of going through these dams that had already been the construction had started and i think he did his trip in like 2017 um and he he had some trouble getting through these little pontoon bridges they made at the two sites so the two sites one's called uh condor cliff and the other one's la barrancosa and there it's a double dam hydroelectric project What's crazy about it, and it's hard to describe it without like an image, but they they have to move an incredible amount of of landscape, the resources they have to use to build up the landscape to create a dam that's essentially like the Hoover Dam or Powell Dam on the Colorado, like a big dam like that, to block the water and create a giant to, to spin a, a turbine to create electricity, and it's going to flood a huge amount of this river area. And the meltwater from the from the river comes from the southern ice fields of Chile, and the largest southern piece of the southern ice field, which is a remarkable tourist attraction, the Marino Glacier, that runs off a lot. Of that and that's like a amazing sight to see. And it's uh, it's at the end of the lake, and 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 the dams could have a lot of effects. They don't really know what the effects. They're saying that it could trigger seismic activity and and start earthquakes. It could flood out the communities of Piedra de Buena and Puerto Santa Cruz. And flood out the, all the estancias in the land. So since this has happened, a lot of the estancias have been started to become uh, abandoned because I think I don't know they, people have just abandoned them. And and uh, the gaucho lifestyle and, and estancias in Argentina is almost like an ancient form of uh, of wisdom and, and and lifestyle that uh, less and less people are practicing it because it's just not economical to sell wool and and live off the land in the same way when they can move to the city and do something else. So a lot of that's faded away. So some of these estancias have become abandoned. Some people still live there, but the estancias that are essentially going to be flooded were started were already abandoned by the time we were paddling through because the dam is, they don't really know. They said five, 10 years construction. But when we got to the first dam, we could just, there was like a city of traffic flooding to the dam because we camped before the, the Condor Cliff the first day. And we hiked up onto the Condor Cliff to see, uh, see the view all the way down. And it was just like, wow, this is like a crazy project. They really have to build up the landscape like massively for a huge distance and a huge height. So, and they were starting to do that, but they were nowhere near uh, getting to the point even where they were going to block the river. So we passed through no problem. And when we passed through, we saw lots of Darwin Rhea and Wanakos just kind of living their life by the riverbanks in the construction site. And it was pretty emotional to see. We didn't really know what to expect and and we got through no problem and and a lot of the workers kind of stopped and looked at us as like whoa these guys are in kayaks like surprised to see us <laughs> but uh we went through both sites and uh and we actually ran into a group of archaeologists from uh, buenos aires that on the other side of the dam that were digging uh for old fossils of the tuelche people like that lived in the area for generations and and lots of arrowheads they were finding and pieces of pottery they were showing us some of the artifacts that they found and and they were just working as hard as they can to try to gather as much as they can before all of it's underwater yeah and all those uh other people that live right in the surrounding area i mean their homes are homes are gone 
Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty uh, uh, spread out country, but all the estancias were forced to be abandoned, essentially. So people weren't living in them when we were there. They had already moved out. But on the other side of the dams, there's quite a community of a, a few thousand people that live at the mouth of the of the river. And and they uh, one guy there, this guy Alexandro, is a really nice guy that we met up with through uh, word of mouth through Santiago, the guy who helped us out. He he paddled with us the last day of our trip and and uh, talking to him. He he I know this year as well. He was taking people down the river and doing like the whole. Uh, just the real Santa Cruz from uh, from the lake to the ocean, and they could still pass through no problem. But with uh, with the area and how wind struck it is, like you gotta stay where the trees are, and uh, you can hold yourself. There's one day it was so windy we had to just raft up and hold ourselves together as we went through. So um, any any idea how much of the landscape is going to be flooded by this dam? Uh, in terms of scale, in terms of like kilometers or miles, it, it's hard to say exactly. They, they, I, I know there's an animated depiction showing roughly of, uh, of the two lakes. It's going to create two giant lakes essentially, but with these two giant lakes being created in the middle of the, the Pampa, there, uh, like there's a lot of speculation saying that it could totally change the, like the weather systems and the climate of the area. So, uh, it could create like more rain, more winds, uh, and, and unknown um, conditions and water levels. And all of that water, it, like the one lake, the first lake could actually flood up and create the, uh, change the height of the, the main river of the Rio Santa Cruz and then Lago Argentino and, and bring the lake level of Argentino up. And it could potentially flood out where the tourist attraction is of the Marino Glacier, which would be, uh, which would be quite the travesty. They don't really know, right? Because yeah. it's, um, it's all speculation at this point because... It depends on on how much, and every season's different with how much water's flowing. I know I was there. Um, I went back in November of 2019, and I saw like I was just there in November, and uh, there's less meltwater. The river was uh, way way lower. I was like, holy crap, the lo- the water's a lot lower. But then in later in March, April, it's even higher, and it just depends on the on the melt and the winter before and everything, just like it does with any uh, flow and. And so, yeah, I think th- th- no one really knows exactly the scale, but it's, it's, they're going to be massive. It's going to really change the landscape. You mentioned the an- animated depictions, so we'll have to, uh, I'll track that stuff down and find some other resources and add those to the show notes so people can learn a little bit more yeah, about the dam I, project. I've got, a, and, I've got a map I can send you, like a, a PDF map that shows, shows a, it's, all, it's all in Spanish, but it, it at least shows a picture of like what, what might happen. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, but it's just, there's a lack of wild, it's the last wild river, undammed river in, in all of, uh, Patagonia. Cause like, if you look North and go up to like the Rio Negro and, and, uh, a lot of the other rivers in, in, in Argentina are completely, uh, dammed and, and changed from their, 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 uh, natural flow. So in Chile, I mentioned before, there was a couple of rivers, the people spoke up and actually stopped these, uh, these rivers from being dammed. And right now they're not slated to be dammed anymore because they were going to do the same thing in Chile and actually, uh, use the power to power like mines in, in the Atacama in the North of Chile. And, and the people spoke up and did a lot of protesting through the Patagonia Simapresa movement. And as far as I know, they they're they're not the the idea of damming them is is not happening anymore in argentina uh i guess this river because it's it's more um there's just so much wide open people just say it's like deserted landscape the pampa the 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 steppe patagonia steppe there isn't 
as much there. So people are like, oh yeah, it's fine. We can flood that and we can create economic resource out of it because right now it's not doing anything. But I think uh, I was really blown away with how incredibly beautiful this landscape was and just the feeling of flowing down the river. And uh, it just felt really special. So from the dam site, so tell us, so continue past the dam site. Tell us a little bit more about the trip yeah, itself so and uh, I'll come back. I've got a few other questions the, for you. The two dam sites. We were probably averaging like, 50 to 70 kilometers a day because you can you can travel pretty far with the flow of the current um depending on the wind i think one day maybe we did like only like 25 30 kilometers because it was just so windy and we waited for the wind to drop and then it didn't drop but we just went anyway so yeah we were stopping along the way everywhere like and stopping at some of these fossil sites and we found some uh, old fossil sites along the way so there is a there's a whole other expedition I want to bring into it that kind of connects to the river as well. So Francisco Marino, uh, which the Marino Glacier is named after, he was the first person actually found, or first like white person, or or uh, that came, uh, or he he was Argentinian, uh, and his and these two uh, Amagino brothers, they there was three of them that paddled uh, up the river as well. And they found the lake and they were also looking at fossil remains. And I know they found fossils of like these weird species that came after the dinosaurs were extinct. So about 40 million year ago time, time, uh, time frame of like these glyptodons and nesodons and like weird mammal species that uh, and a terror bird like this giant uh bird that that like a dinosaur type bird but and uh, giant sloths and there's a whole like a whole archaeology of the pa- of patagonia is pretty in depth and and this step is uh is one interesting area that this was traveled in i think it was like the 1850s 1870s like so like almost 50 years later when um 40 50 years later after darwin had got nobody had traveled there at all and then francisco marino went through with the marino amagino brothers and they went to some a few fossil sites so as we went down the river past the dam sites, we stopped at a couple of these sites and they had like ancient o- oyster beds, like fossilized oyster shells. And we found some pieces of like glyptodon, which is like an ancient ar- armadillo, armadillo shell, like a few specimens we found. And uh, we found some other old bone structures, which could be like Wanako or could be some old Nesodon or, or ancient um, mammal species. But it's, it's hard to say exactly, but what do we do with them? Do we take them out? Do we bring them to the museum? Or because this was actually in between the dam sites, it was going to be on the second lake, and then so it was like, oh, what do we do? At least we just we talked, we told the archaeologists, archaeologists, we saw, and they were spending time there as well, digging and finding everything they could just to kind of find this fascinating history of unknown uh, mammal mammalogy essentially that exists in the region that's been like lost, lost and forgotten. So we were visiting some of those sites and hiking way up on the cliffs and getting some really dramatic views of the whole valley system because it's just an amazing – it almost reminded me of like Baja, Mexico and in, in with like the blue water meeting like this desert landscape because it's uh, – the Pampa is really dry. It's kind of like a desert and the, the river water is really blue. And walking off the trail down the, the way is, is quite the endeavor. There's like these little thistles, thistle plants that are everywhere that get on your socks and on your shoes and pants. And, and uh, they're quite sharp. It's almost like stinging nettle, like feeling it's not quite comfortable. But anyway, walking through the landscape was quite neat, what we would see and getting as many perspectives as we could from these other expeditions. So, sure. so if, if somebody else were interested in doing a similar trip, uh, what, what can others do to replicate a similar trip? 
I think it's totally possible. Like, as I mentioned, there's a couple kayaking companies still offering tours there. I know they, there's another place out of Calafate they're offering, uh, I think it's Patagonia Profundo. Uh, Cole's actually been involved uh, with working with them and develop a day kayak tour called the Darwin Experience, going through kind of explaining some of the history and wildlife that you can see on the upper Santa Cruz, closer to Calafate, near the mouth, like where it, it enters uh, Lago Argentino. So day trips can be done with there. They're talking about doing more multi-day trips. I know my friend Alexandro in, in Pier de Buena by Puerto Santa Cruz, he does five, set, five day trips. I think he did a few this year through his kayak aventura company that he has it's like a local company and and he does like guided trips down the area and then kayak santa cruz does the rio la leona and they i think they've done once or twice they've done the rio santa cruz as well there's just not a lot of demand for it um because uh and the scale they're operating as that small and uh, yeah I, I would encourage anyone that has the skills and experience to do the whole route that we did and uh just say watch out for lago vidma and watch your winds very carefully and it's kind of, I can't say I advise anyone to go because it's actually illegal to go paddling there you, unless you can seek permission, but you can't really seek permission. They're not going to let you do it. So, but I would seek out to Santiago and Alexandro and, and Eduardo, the guy that runs Kayak Santa Cruz, myself, Cole, Ken, anyone else that has done the trip and uh, the people that are part of the nonprofit organization, Patagonia Cinema Presas, Rio Santa Cruz Cinema Presas. I know they have an Instagram as well. And they're always posting stuff on updates of what's going on with the dams. So I would find as much information as you can. Local knowledge is, is very crucial. Like we had no idea and it was like absolutely crucial. We talked to Santiago and got the, the campsite information of where we could camp in the trees. Because you could look at Google Earth all you want, but you can't really see the most ideal spots to camp with distances between. Also, like the, we had the folding kayaks, so it was nice that we could pack them up and and take them on the bus afterwards because if you had a vehicle shuttle, it's a very, it's like a four or five hour drive from the coast back to the mountains, and and it's so incredibly windy. I know people that have driven kayaks, even Santiago told me, and, and Alexandro, they've had like fiberglass kayaks blow off and get smashed on the road because if you're using a hard shell boat and and it's on the roof, you can't really tie it down tight enough because it's just so windy. So I, I like I definitely recommend a kayak like the track to to do the trip because. Uh, it is versatile and you can fold it up and move it if, if your plans change or you have to deal with the timeline to move locations. I know there's some other people that did a pack raft trip with bicycles and, and they made a little video I found on YouTube and it just looked absolutely miserable. They were just getting blown <laughs> off the river all the time and ended up having the bike most of it, uh, which is a whole other story. But yeah, so you could do it. You just have to kind of wait a lot more. Um, yeah for for wind but you mm. don't know you could have a week of really calm weather and when i was there in november 2019 it was uh it was really uh really calm i was like wow i had some really calm there were some really calm days and then for like four or five days in a row uh but then you get four or five days of really intense winds or every other day it switches so you just got to watch those i like the windy it's pretty good with the pressure systems and 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 really watch your wet weather carefully and just seek out as much local knowledge as possible well, certainly a folding performance boat is, uh, has opened the world up to places that you wouldn't have been able to get to otherwise. So that's uh, pretty cool that you had the opportunity <laughs> yeah, to use those. So what did you enjoy most about the trip? I think I, I really liked the collaboration, the collaborative effort of working with Ken and Cole. And uh, I, I, it's just a moment of excitement that when I reconnected with Cole on Lake Superior and we started talking about this, I'm like, yeah, we kept an email contact. And I went down to Minneapolis and met up with him with the kayaks and we worked on some stuff and just getting more comfortable in the boats and the progression of that. And then I had already connected with Cole, I, who I knew was working down 
in Patagonia for another company in Chile actually that year. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, cool. Do you want to come? Cause he, he, uh, he had a, uh, a track kayak as well. And then, uh, Ken ended up ordering a, a track and, and, uh, and, uh, I got a demo boat to use for the trip, uh, as, cause it was like the maiden voyage of the trip. So it was exciting to get that, uh, uh support from track. It was really amazing. The best thing was just get, being out there with people and having our, our three generations of, 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 like, of paddlers come together because Ken's in his late 60s. I'm in my mid-30s and, uh, and Cole's in his mid-20s. So we're like very different people, you know, but we all had so much to bring. Like I've done a lot of expeditions. I've done over 15 years of expeditions and planning and, and, and speaking Spanish and connecting with some of the logistics with Santiago to organize the details of where we're going to go, what, where, when. Ken, like, really bringing this deep history into it with the uh, Amiguino brother, Francisco Marino expedition, and the Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle expedition up the river and revisiting uh, Conrad Martin's artistic drawings, actual sites, and, and, and finding those spots was really magical to do. And then Cole's, like, excitement on social media and uh and drive and, and excitement of just doing an expedition like this and getting up in the morning and getting us motivated and moving we were really uh, a good team all together so it was i was most excited to be with those guys and and just being in this wild beautiful place on an adventure very cool so what would you say your biggest challenges at the trip were i think the challenges were dealing with the, the wind the wind was uh was absolutely wild and just knowing that like the pressure of like we have to make it to this campsite because we don't we like we could camp in the open but we don't want to because of the wind we wanted to seek protection and and we were also very nervous about the dams and what we were told by this uh by uh this guy lolly that paddled the the dam before like a year previous and he and and he showed us some video footage of this like blockade and we're like whoa how big because we couldn't find any accurate information on if the dams were blocking the river or anything so we found we saw some people just like fishing on the side of the river just before the first dam site that they were like dam workers i think but they, they we asked us like if it was possible to pass we're like yeah okay and from then we're like oh, oh sweet we felt like a bit relieved but uh we just that was a challenge to kind of just the pressure and stress of like not really knowing uh what was going on and, and but overall the wind was the most intense winds i've ever dealt with and it was scary so after the dam sites, uh, how long was the trip? I mean, what kind of transpired from there? Uh, I think it was another three or four days. So it was a 14-day trip o- overall with like three days waiting at the mouth of the La Leona, Rio La Leona. And then I think it was like six days we spent, maybe seven days on the Santa Cruz. So what was another challenge is we, we got the Pier de Buena and we met up with Alexandro and Ken was like, I'm tired. I'm, I'm not going to paddle the last day out the out to the mouth uh, where the, the river meets the ocean. But uh, Alexandro came with a couple of his other paddling friends, and we did a, a full-day paddle out. And uh, and we got to Puerto Santa Cruz, which is like almost at the salt water. We can see the salt water, but Punta Quicha, uh, uh, Point Keel, is where the Beagle, uh, the Beagle landed in 1834 and they had to do repairs on the keel just inside the uh, the port of santa cruz in the bay uh, outside the open atlantic and they fixed the keel so they called they called it punta quicha point keel and uh, we wanted to get there and finish our trip right at the atlantic and uh the prefectura shut us down they were not going to let us because it's like an industrial port and and we had to we were with alexandro and alexandro was like oh no let's let's finish the trip here like we don't we could get authorities coming after us and it was trouble so 
rented a car and went and visited the site afterwards. And we had to get like permission to go through from the port authorities, and it was kind of complicated. So yeah, I was like surprised how thoroughly guarded the the waters waterways of Argentina were. And even if we were to go out into the Atlantic as well, that's like forbidden as well. And so we had to end our trip slightly early, which we could see the open water, so we still paddled out there, but. Really, it was about the learning and the journey, not not going from the source of the mountains to the sea, even though that was an amazing idea. We did it as best we could, but the main objective was the history and reliving that. Well, it definitely does sound like a quite a trip of a lifetime here. So, uh, Zach, you mentioned Track and their folding boat. Any other sponsors yeah. you want to give a shout-out to that were helpful in making this trip happen? I definitely want to give a shout-out to all the... Like Alexander and Santiago and and his company in Piedra Buena and and uh, Kayak Santa Cruz and Patagonia Profundo, all the guys that are that are doing uh, great things, uh, bringing people out to those waterways because I think they're uh, they're the true heart of it. Yeah, we got amazing support from Track and I got continued amazing support and I really believe in their their boats and they worked really well for us. The gauchos that helped us uh, move from the farm to off Lago Vidma to Rio La Leona definitely got to give a shout out to them. I don't know. That was uh, kind of the extent of, of our uh, our support network. Like, we could have applied for more and sought, seek more out, but we're like, hey, let's go do this. Yeah, all that local knowledge uh, was certainly uh, more valuable than anything else. Yeah, and we conducted a lot of interviews, and I have a lot of video footage that I'm still trying to figure out what to do with. And <laughs> and uh, hopefully I'll have a, a film a product to make out of this at some point. But it's really nice to kind of retell the story like this. And, uh, and put it in perspective and you kind of got to imagine what it was really like. I'm glad we could help out. So Zach, how could listeners reach you if they have more questions? Well, right now I'm, I, I operate a seasonal business on, on Lake Superior called Such a Nice Day Adventures and I kind of do uh, uh, some sea kayaking trips up there. So you can go through my website, uh, suchanniceday.com or info at suchanniceday.com. I also have a blog post of this story written up on my personal blog, which is zachcruzins.com. So yeah, you can find me through there or Instagram, Facebook. Um, it's such a nice day. I use Instagram and Facebook quite a bit and, and keep things going on what I'm doing up to date. So yeah, I'm super happy to chat with anyone about the trip and, and go through in detail. Well, we'll definitely get uh, links to your social media presence as well as that uh, web blog so people can see and learn a little bit more about the trip and see the pictures from the trip. Um, now, you're up in uh, north of Lake Superior, the Thunder Bay area, right? Yeah, I'm based in Thunder Bay, Ontario, yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah, I know you've got some fantastic waters up there, and those of us from the Great Lake know or Great Lakes know that you know it certainly is captivating, and, and certainly it, it captivated you back in that uh, 2005 time, and you've certainly had the opportunity to put that lakehead education to use uh, all around the world. Yeah, it's interesting because like, I did this trip with Ken as well, who I've paddled with on Lake Superior. He owns an island on the lake, and, and he, uh, he's from Minneapolis, but he loves it up there. He spends as much time up there. I think like he's just recently retired, and he, he wants to like kind of move there permanently uh, on his island because he loves it so much. But his perspective of deeper learning, uh, of, of really enjoying, like he grew up sailing on the North Shore of Lake Superior in Canada, and, and his dad has a, a boat in Bayfield, Wisconsin, so he spent a lot of time going up there. And and he loves Lake Superior. Just an amazing feeling from being on it. It's an, it's more of an unknown uh, place in the world. 
And I, I did put together a paddling guidebook on the area. So if anyone's interested in that, I have more information and, and I can talk more about, about that area. But it's another hidden secret, of a whole other talk we could do on that. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have you on in the future and uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, about your playground up there as well. So, Zach, it's been great talking yeah. to you today. I've really appreciated the opportunity. Um, one final question for you here. Uh, the final question is one that I like to ask uh, many of our guests here. And uh, Zach, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? You know what? Um, it's a tough question. There's a lot of people I could say, but if I was to mention one one group of people at least, um, and I, I really support youthful energy and uh, in 2018, uh, I met these four guys. Uh, they were from Marquette, Michigan, actually, in the, in the U.S., and they were paddling around Lake Superior. And they were really reaching out to everybody and anyone who loved and lived for Lake Superior. And I think they have a really great story to tell about their trip. Uh, I know their website's uh, For the Water. I'm trying to remember all of their names now. Ryan, Jared, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember them all. Anyway, I've been mostly conversing with Ryan, and, and I know they're finishing a documentary film on uh, For the Water and how uh, people can love and care for the water and how important that resource is and how important it is to connect with people in the community that live on those waters. So I would recommend reaching out to those guys and having a chat for sure. I will reach out to them definitely. And uh, those who listen to the podcast certainly know that uh, the the importance of water, the power of it, and what it does for all of us in our lives. So not only uh, just to sustain life, but for us recreationally. This has been great. I really appreciate the opportunity to learn about Rio Santa Cruz and your expedition to Patagonia. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, John. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Zach. He's a fun guy with a love for exploration. Our next episode is going to feature Mike Ranta, and Mike is the only person to have paddled across the entire North American continent in a single season. And as if once wasn't enough, he did it a second time two years later. So get ready for a great ride as Mike shares his adventures and his message. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Peddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.